I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Peter Kim. And she starts riding me. And all I could mutter from my mouth was, Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, no! That and more. But before that, I just wanted to let you know that Risk is supported in part by ZipRecruiter. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to over 100 job sites with a single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. And seriously, if you've never been to Squarespace.com, you don't know what you're missing. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform that makes building your own website very simple, very easy. Squarespace has beautiful templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and responsive design. For a free trial and 10% off your first order, go to squarespace.com, enter the code RISK. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And lastly, a lot of small businesses get stuck doing things the old way, just out of habit, including vital operations like mailing and shipping that can be so time-consuming. If you're still making trips to the post office, you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can do all your mailing and shipping right from your desk, never go to the post office again. With Stamps.com, you print postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Then just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. Stamps.com is convenient and easy to use and will save you money. You get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Beats Antique. Behind me now, and we're calling today's episode live from Chicago 3, our third time we've recorded a show in Chicago, one of my very favorite cities in the world, gorgeous town, great people, the water of Lake Michigan was the color, it was like turquoise when I was there just, what was that, last weekend, the weekend before? I can't keep up with where I'm going these days. Folks, we also did a wonderful show in Detroit recently, but I'll tell you, we're really struggling with the audio that we got on that one. So you might hear one or two of those stories if we can really fix it up well enough, but I, I think we lost most of Detroit. Which only means we have to get back to Detroit as soon as possible because I loved it there. And we're in Boston this weekend at the Women in Comedy Festival on the 25th of April. So come out and see us. Now we're going to present this Chicago show today as one uninterrupted chunk. And we're going to start with a fabulous young comedian in Chicago, a stand-up. His first time ever on Risk, and I think he did an awesome job. This is Mikey Manker with a story we call Family Secrets. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not book smart. I'm also not street smart. (laughs) That's also the thing. Like, I would fail a test and then get mugged on the way home. That's, that's the kind of guy I am. So when I got into eighth grade, for some reason or another, I was under the impression, uh, may, may have been from like watching TV too much or whatever, that when you got into eighth grade or a senior in high school, you didn't have to do any work. You don't just show up and be cool and they'll pass you. <laughs> so I'm in class one day. This is March 1995. And my teacher, uh, Miss Butler, my homeroom teacher, goes, uh, Mike, Principal Rosenhauer wants to see you. Miss Ruth Rosenhauer, she was probably seven years old. I think she's always been seven years old. She was never a baby. She's always been seven years old. So I go to this office. I've been in this office before. This is not the first time. I, once a month, I was, I called the office to get yelled at. So I'm sitting in the office. I'm sitting at her desk. And she goes, listen, you've been warned all year about your grades countless times over and over again to get your grades up, get your head out of your ass. Um, At this point in the year, even if you aced every homework assignment, every test, everything, there's no way you will pass the eighth grade. So I'm sorry, but you're going to be held back this year. And you'll have to repeat the eighth grade next year. And she gave me an envelope, an envelope with with like a red piece of paper in it, explaining it. And she goes, take this home to your mom and dad show them this letter, have them sign it, and in a few weeks, we will uh, have a meeting and discuss your future with the school. Now, keep in mind, this was 1995. There was no email, no texting. At this point, my parents had no clue what was going on. But obviously, my mom and dad had jobs where they were away for the phone, so they didn't call home to tell them. So it was on me to go home and tell my mom and dad that I'd failed the eighth grade and get this letter. So I'm walking home. Two blocks away, and I'm walking home, and I'm just fucking, I am scared shitless. Not because, oh, I've embarrassed the family or whatever, 
But my dad was very strict. My dad was like a Missouri farm boy. His mom died when he was 13. He was raised by his dad. It was very, there was no timeout, like when he got in trouble. It was like, it was like, go get something off the tree. I'm gonna fucking beat you with it. So, like, there, like, there was no go in the corner, Mike. It was like, well, I'm gonna fucking hit you with whatever I can find. In fact, when I was six years old, I gave my dad the finger. I don't know. So, he told me to clean the house and he turned his back and I gave him the finger. I didn't know what the finger meant. I just saw it on TV. That's what you do when you disagree with somebody. And I gave him the fucking finger. His back was turned, and my baby sister Melanie goes, Dad, he gave me the finger. My dad fucking, his, his head turned red, turned around, grabbed a wiffle ball bat, and just beat the shit out of me with a wiffle ball bat. It's, he swung ten times, didn't whiff once. That's how I remember it. That's how I remember it. So I'm walking home, and I am fucking terrible. Because my mom, she was not, she, my mom didn't give a shit. I mean, she cared, but like she wasn't like... If we ever got in trouble, we would go to my mom first and say, Mom, sign this. We're in trouble. And then she'll sign, Oh, I don't care. I don't give a shit. And then we'll go back to school. My dad was the... We hid everything from my dad. So I go home. And I get to my house. My parents are not home from work yet. I go upstairs, and I'm sitting on my bed in my room, and I'm fucking crying. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This is awful. Ten minutes later, my older sister, Melissa, gets home. She pulls up in her car. And Melissa gets out of her car, and she walks in the house, and she goes upstairs into my room. Now, my house growing up, it wasn't like a nice house. It was like kind of like lower middle class. And to get to my sister's bedroom, you had to uh, walk through my room. You walk upstairs through my room into her room. I'm on my bed. I'm crying, holding this letter. I, I haven't even opened it yet. Because it, it says I failed. I, I'm not going to change it. It just says I failed. Melissa comes upstairs. She's also crying. And I look at her, and we kind of make eye contact. And my first thought, I was, I was thinking, oh, gosh, she failed eighth grade, too. Why is she crying? Like, what's going on? <laughs> so Melissa sees me crying, and she goes, what's wrong? And I go, I, did you tell me first? Melissa goes, Mike, uh, don't tell mom and dad. I just found out I'm pregnant. My sister found out she was pregnant, like, that day, the same day I found out I was failing eighth grade. So she tells me this, and I go, I, I go, you're fucking, I, I go, are you serious? And my sister goes, yes, I was at school, I took a pregnancy test twice, and it came back positive both times, I'm pregnant. And she looks at me and she goes, what's wrong with you? And I go, don't tell mom and dad, I just found out I failed the eighth grade. And Melissa goes, are you sure? And I go, yeah, I failed all the tests, all of them. I, I got negatives on all the fucking tests. All of them. I didn't even take some of them. I fucking failed them. <laughs> so we're looking at each other and we're like, well, what are we gonna do? So me and Melissa, she's sitting like on the end of my bed. She's in fucking tears. I'm crying. This is, the entire house is crying. The entire house is crying. Just me and her. We're like, all right, we can't tell mom and dad. This will be our secret. <laughs> now you're probably thinking that's fucking insane. Why would you keep that a secret? Here's why we had to keep it a secret. In June of that year, our parents were taking us to Disney World. <laughs> it was gonna celebrate me getting out of the eighth grade and Melissa not getting pregnant that year, I guess, I don't know. I... <laughs> but that's the kind of bond that Melissa and I had because we were, we were both kind of in that same kind of age group. I was 13, 14, she was 16. We, we both, since we lived upstairs and kind of this, shared the same room, we would look out for each other. 
like we would help each other sneak out whenever it was. We would like sneak beer and shit. We would share beers. It, it was it was great. It was a great relationship. So like, all right, we'll keep this a secret. This will be made. We weren't thinking about the future. We were just thinking about the here and now, which is when your dad has a wiffle ball bat and a fucking tree branch. That's all you're thinking about is the here and now. Nothing else. All right, we'll keep this a secret. This will be amazing. Two weeks into the lie, it's going amazing. The lie is the best lie we've ever come up with. Like, they, nobody knows. My parents are like, oh, how's school going? Great, it's amazing. The first time I ever said, great, it's amazing, it's awesome. <laughs> Most of how's your school? Great, everything's great. Go to our rooms. We were like, oh, another day. This is chalk one up. This is great. At the time, I had a CD that I loved, that I would listen to all the time. It was like a greatest hits compilation, and the CD uh, was... Brian Adams, so far, so good. <laughs> now, if you need a reminder who Brian Adams is, Brian Adams is a Canadian fucking rock legend. That's all, he's a rock god. He, he sang, okay, he sang, remember Robin Hood, the Everything I Do, I Do It For You song? He sang that song. That was my favorite song of all time. So that greatest hit CD had Everything I Do It, just had, all the hits were on that set. All the hits. I, every hit ever written was on that CD. And I fucking loved it. And I listened to it every day. That movie came out in 1991. I was still listening to that fucking song every day. It was my pride and joy. I loved it. I asked for it for like Christmas and they gave it to me for some reason. I, I loved it. Like I said, Melissa had a car. And gas back then was about a dollar a gallon. So she stole my CD one day. And she pawned it to buy five bucks worth of gas. And I was fucking furious. I was so angry. Now keep in mind, this was in 1995, there was no iPods, there was no Spotify, there was no YouTube. Uh, if you wanted to listen to a song, you had to either have the CD or listen to it on the radio. And nobody fucking played Brian Adams on the radio. If you wanted to hear that song, you had to go to a wedding. And I could go to a wedding. So she fucking took it, snatched it from me, snatched it and sold it. And I was fucking so angry, but I couldn't say a word because if I said anything, everything would come crashing down, the lie would be ruined, Disney World, no, no, no more Disney World anymore. So I kept my mouth shut. So two weeks into this lie, every Sunday at our house was family game night. What we would do is we would have dinner and then we would kind of help clean up and then afterwards we would play a board game. You know, a game like uh, Monopoly or Sorry or Parchy, whatever the board game was. Keep in mind, my father and my baby sister, they were out of town in Kentucky visiting family. So it was at the kitchen table, it was my mom, Melissa, and myself. My mom was doing taxes. It was end of March, she was doing her taxes, and me and Melissa, we were playing the game Guess Who? You guys remember Guess Who? Yeah. Guess Who, if you don't, guess, guess Who is like Battleship if you're not a fucking warmonger. It's like, what you do is you basically, he's like, is your, is your person this? No, is your person this? Is your, so, me and Melissa play seven games of Guess Who, and she fucking gets my person on the very first try every time. She fucking cheated. She was cheating. Cheated all... Cheated! She was cheating. 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 You, there's no... She wasn't lucky. She was 16 and pregnant. She wasn't fucking lucky. She was cheating all night long. All night. And I... And I lost it. I could not take... I couldn't take it anymore. So I basically, she was cheating because your person's Catherine. I'm like, fuck this. I go, mom, I go, mom, she stole my CD. Melissa goes, he failed the eighth grade. I go, she's pregnant. My mom did not know what to do. Her entire life just came crashing down upon her. Every 
Remember in Saving Private Ryan, like, oh, your other kid's dead. Like, oh, fuck, why? It was like that. Every awful thing, you can see it in her eyes. There's no chicken soup to save this woman's soul whatsoever. Fucking kids pregnant, this one failed. And so my mom, in a state of disbelief, she looks at me, Melissa, me outside, me, Melissa, and then she just goes, she goes, Michael, go to your room. Melissa, he loved that CD. My mom yelled at Melissa about the CD. Because my mom also loved that CD and it was gone now, it was gone. So I go upstairs, I'm in my room. I'm fucking in my room and I'm losing my shit, I'm crying, oh fuck, like dad's gonna be, like my dad puts Joe Jackson to shame, that's how fucking crazy he was. So my mom and my mom and Melissa are downstairs. They're fucking yelling at each other. How could you be so goddamn irresponsible? You never paid attention to me. That's why he was face fucking 19 years old. Out yelling back and forth. You're you're keeping that baby. You're fucking keeping that baby. So then they're arguing back and forth more. So then Melissa comes upstairs, and I'm still I'm crying. I'm just. And this is what kind of my life changed, because for me this is the first time when I realized, oh fuck, dude, if you want to get ahead in life. You gotta work. You can't just show up and fucking just, you gotta fucking put the work in, you gotta do the test. You know, it's, if shit happens, there's not gonna be a fucking pregnant woman to save you. You gotta, you, so from then on, for the rest of my life, I started getting good grades. I was going to school more. I, I, I got my shit together. Melissa, on the other hand, her kind of path took a different direction. She kind of went south. So then Melissa comes upstairs and she's crying, she's fucking, pissed at me, I'm pissed at her, I'm, the entire house is pissed. Melissa just bypasses me, goes into her room. Goes into her room, pulls out a white plastic bag. She comes back in my room, and she just goes, here you little asshole, and threw the bag at me. I grab the bag, fucking open it up, and it is a brand new sealed copy of Bride Adams, so far, so good. <laughs> She had bought me, she felt so bad, she had bought me a new copy earlier in that day. Aww. Oh, damn. Aww. She started it. Why she <laughs> and then Melissa looks at me. And she goes, she's crying. She goes, here you little asshole. And she goes, and by the way, I talked to mom. We're still going to Disney World, but now I can't ride the ride. See, I laughed so fucking hard. Thank you guys very much. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you again when we see you. Mr. Kevin Allison, ladies and gentlemen. Awesome. Uh, I never uh, failed a, a class in my school years, but I was once almost expelled from high school but it was for a very understandable and legitimate reason. I, I decided to pull a prank on my friend Ben and I thought it would be really funny and a great surprise if I jerked off into a condom <laughs> and then put it in an envelope and took it in my book bag to school and then dropped it in the inter-homeroom mail system <laughs> so that it would go to my friend Ben in homeroom. Unfortunately, he opened it and saw what was inside and just yelled, Ah, oh, Allison, because who the fuck else would have sent that? So I was instantly turned in to the vice principal uh, who was you know, in charge of discipline at our high school. 
And it turned out that he let me go scot-free because he was secretly gay and he loved my performance in our production of Godspell. <laughs> so sometimes it pays <laughs> to be really, really good when people are doing a production of Godspell. Um, our next uh, storyteller, he does storytelling all around town and has been for years. He has called himself the Caucasian host of the moth in town. Uh, apparently, because I guess there's only one Caucasian host of the moth in Chicago. However, uh, one of my 20-year-olds, I have a habit of dating 20-year-olds, <laughs> happens to be studying uh, gender studies and feminism and racial studies in, 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 uh, at NYU. And he once yelled at me. He always lets me know when I've crossed a line with my language. He said, Kevin, you can't say Caucasian. I was like, what? Now I can't say Caucasian? It turns out that Caucasus <laughs> or Caucasus is an area uh, where, you know, apparently a lot of different people of different races now live, so it's, it's slightly inaccurate. Nevertheless, you can find Don Hall at uh, donhallchicago.com. He is the director of live events for WBEZ. Please welcome Don Hall! Thank you, Kevin. Uh, since I can't be called the Caucasian host, I'm just going to be the Narnian host. Thank you. We're going to go to 1986. I was 20 years old, and it was college. Don't get too used to the room. I've run out four roommates before you. I'll run you out. It was my first dorm room. I transferred from a college in Kansas to the University of Arkansas because they gave me a shit ton of money to be in their marching band. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I got a full ride scholarship, room, board, the, pretty much the whole thing. And it was also that I could be in their marching band and play in their jazz band. So I did that. I played trumpet. And this was my first dorm room. And I knew I was going to get a roommate, but I had no idea who the roommate was and how hard could it be. And this is the thing. And I sort of was in that phase. Again, 1986, I wore jams. Remember jams? Anybody know jams? The red and white checked Shoes? Nobody fucking knows. Everybody's 20 fucking years old in here. All right. I wore jams. I wore, I, I probably had 10 different Hawaiian shirts. I started fashioning myself after my own version of Hunter S. Thompson. And I was a, and I was a, like Hunter S. Thompson, I was a fucking blackout drunk. I opened the door to the room, and the first thing I noticed were samurai swords. And and knives, and pistols, and a, a shotgun, and a, a be-all-you-can-be fucking army poster, and green fucking everywhere. And I thought, oh, shit. And as I walked in and kind of put my box of crap down on the desk, Joe Miller came in. Joe was the complete opposite of me. He was a junior. He was an ROTC guy. He was pressed. In fact, everything he was wearing had starch in it. And he was a 
fucking psycho. Didn't know that yet, but he had in fact run out four roommates in the two months that that college did. Four in two months um, by just freaking them out and being annoying and fucking with them. Because he wanted his own room, but there was a shortage of rooms. And this was Gregson Hall. This was the top of the quad. This was the top of the hill. This was the cool dorm. And he had a room that he had managed to have all to himself. Don't touch any of my shit. I said, well, somebody's got to touch your shit because there's no room for my shit. So either you're going to touch your shit or I'm going to touch your shit, but your shit's got to move. And I put on the biggest shitting grin I could put on my face because I thought bees can smell fear. Maybe psychos can smell fear. No fear. And he moved his shit. But then the battle began. He was going to run me out of my room. He was gonna, that was, he'd never met me. He didn't know that I was like Marty McFly and if you called me a chicken, I was gonna be an asshole about it the whole time. But that was how it went. And so it was move and counter move, tit for tat. It was him coming in and waking up at five o'clock in the morning and playing John Philip Sousa. You know, it was me then in return coming in at three o'clock in the morning completely shit faced and playing Led Zeppelin and Black Flag. It was him sitting while I was trying to study cleaning his guns really noisily. It was me while he was trying to study laying in my bed and jerking off cleaning my gun, so to speak, right? War, motherfucker. Um, it, it was one morning I woke up and we had split the bunk beds. I had the bottom bunk, but we split the bunk beds. And so I'm, you know, we're apart, mother. And I wake up and there is a German shepherd attack dog, inches chained, chained to my bed, inches from my face. You know, it's an ROTC loner, I guess. It's, they've, got, they've got dogs. And he borrowed a dog and he chained it to my fucking bed. So I chained it to his bed, like on top of his bed. The dog relieved himself on Joe's bed and then Joe was pissed at me and that was funny. So this is kind of how things are going. And we're, this is like two months we're doing this to each other. I mean, we couldn't sleep. It was constant. It was nonstop. We'd managed to avoid each other somewhat, but it was always fucking something. And then one day, a Saturday... I was cramming for a test. Now, I, I'd gone to the bathroom. I went and had breakfast, but I came back, and nobody had entered the room since I'd been in there, and I was working on cramming for a test, how you cram for a test. You figure out ways to cheat and ways to memorize shit you're not supposed to memorize and not read the book, and I'm doing this. For four hours, I'm doing this. No one's come in or out of the room the entire time. I don't know where Joe is, and then I hear something. Four hours into this, I hear something in his closet. I'm like, oh, fuck. Is it going to be another dog? Is it going to be a snake? What kind of booby trap is he set for me? And I walk over and I open the closet door and just about crawl out of my skin because there is none other than Joe fucking Miller sitting on an overturned bucket with a noose around his fucking neck sharpening a 14-inch fucking knife for four hours in the closet while I'm studying. I was like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck is your problem, you psycho? And he looks at me with these sad eyes and he says, I'm in love. Uh (laughs) With, and I was really hoping it wasn't me. (laughs) 
Linda, he says. Now, Linda, Linda was this woman that was in ROTC. I think she was like a sergeant and he was a PFC or whatever the fuck they do in ROTC. And she was, she was married, but her husband was stationed in Germany. So he was actually in the real, for real army and he was in Germany. And Joe was in love with Linda. He was in love with her. And because Joe didn't have any friends and because he couldn't chase me away by proximity and tenacity, I became his confidant. And so he started for years, for not years, but for, for every night, he would lay there and he would tell me about all this time and how much he loved Linda and how the things that she did all day long that made him swoon and just, oh, shit. And if I were a better, and I really, I do, honestly, and you'll find out in a second why, I wish I'd been a better person, but I was 20 years old. I didn't know shit. And I was a drunk. I didn't care about Joe. I thought, hey, this is an opportunity for some fun. And it became like an 80s buddy comedy where you have the cooler guy, the more put together guy, you know, sort of molding the turd into an Adonis, sort of like real genius with Val Kimmler, except <laughs> Joe and I were both really stupid, so it wasn't quite the same thing. And I'm convincing, I'm like, no, dude, don't give up on her here. And I. I convinced him, he was like, write these kinds of notes and then stick them in her bags and in her books and like leave flowers places and know, find out where she eats during the day and then just be there and have conversations with her. And I'm basically training him to be a fucking stalker, but I don't know because I don't give a shit. I'm like, this is way better than waking up with a fucking dog chained to my bed. So, okay, we'll go with this game. About a month of this goes by. And Linda comes by the dorm room. First time I met Linda, and she was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and she is trashed. She is so drunk, she can barely stand, and she's crying. She wants to know where Joe is. I said, I don't know. He's not here. Where is he? I don't know. And you see Joe. I said, well, I, I don't know where he's at. And, and then I realized that she kind of needs to go lay down. And I'm not going to be a dick, and I'm not going to just send her away. So I put my stuff away, and I walk her as she stumbles to her dorm, which is about a mile away, and put her up in her room and put her on her bed and leave. Because, like, you know, I can't leave her that drunk in the middle of the afternoon. And I go back to the room. And maybe an hour later, Joe shows up, and he says, yeah. And I said, yeah, hey, Linda came by, and she was really fucking drunk, and she was crying. He goes, Where's she now? I said, I just took, I took her to her room so she could, you know, sleep it off. He finishes up and stuff. He leaves. See him that night, no big deal. Two days later, the police department knock on my door. Turns out that Joe had left our room and gone over to her room and raped her. And I was the only material witness in the circumstances that led up to the rape. I knew how he felt about her and could tell them I knew that she, I took her to the room and that she was incapacitated. I was the only person that could corroborate her story. She accused him of rape. He denied it, and I was the only one to support her story. So I gave him the information, and they left. And they hadn't arrested Joe yet. And Joe showed up like nothing had happened. And and I wondered, did Joe know he'd been accused of rape? Wait a minute, he's a rapist. 
I'm in a room with a rapist. Does he, does he know the faithful police talked to me? And that night I laid awake for the entire night because all I could think of was if this psychopath knows that I'm basically the rat that's going to put him in jail, he's got 14-inch fucking knives. I'm going to, oh, this is not good. And I'm scared out of my mind. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, I just get up, grab my pillow, grab my blanket, and I go down to the quad room, sort of the community room, you know? And I sleep there. And for the next week, I'm sleeping there, and I'm sleeping in my friends' rooms, and I'm sleeping in, like, classrooms. I'm, I, I don't want to be around him because I just know that while I think on some level my life is being written by John Irving, it might be being written by Stephen King, and I don't know. After about a week, I'm, he won. He's won the room. I'm fucking out of here, man. I don't care. I have to leave. And I'm about to go and, and put in transfer, and I see that he's moving out. It turns out that Linda had dropped the charges. His father had come to move him out and drop him out of college, and he was leaving. And I didn't know how to feel. Like, really relieved? I guess kind of like triumphant because I got the room. And as he was leaving, he saw me, he says, I thought you were my fucking friend. And I went, what? What? What makes you think I was your friend ever, you psycho rapist? And he just hung his head and he left. The thing is, his name really is Joe Miller. I've never changed his name to tell this story. And every fucking time I tell this story, there is a part of me every time. And this is like going to go out to like 500,000 people on a podcast, so I'm fucked. I don't know. <laughs> but there's this feeling that maybe Joe Miller might be in the audience somewhere just kind of looking at me. And he's been waiting for a long time with his 14-inch fucking knife. And I really hope that's not going to happen. Um, and so I really hope, knowing him, he's probably not the kind of person that lists, listens to podcasts, <laughs> let alone risk. Probably not his taste. So that's all I can hope. But uh, that's my freaky story. Thank you. in college who raped anyone, but I did have a roommate in college who was consistently being tied up and spanked by the lead actor in a television show called House of Cards. <laughs> I, and I, I had such a crush on my roommate. I was so jealous of the famous actor that would occasionally stop by. Um, let me bring our next storyteller to the stage. There's all sorts of lawsuits that are going to come into this episode. Um, uh, this is her second time, I think second time doing Risk, and uh, it's just such a joy to know her. She is one of the treasures of the uh, Chicago storytelling scene. She has her own show called The Stoop uh, she comes to us from Humboldt Park, where she uh, was born and raised, and she makes the best tamales ever. And we all have the goal of getting more Lily Bees in the storytelling scene. Please welcome to the stage, Lily Bees! 
Second time is not any less nerve-wracking. I'm going to tell you that right now. Okay. I am a firm believer that if you have a dream, you should go get it. If there's a risk, you should take it. And if there's a fantasy you want fulfilled, you should do it. With that said, growing up, I didn't have or I didn't grow up with that type of environment. My family is very Catholic, hardworking Mexicans in Humble Park. We didn't take risks. Thank you. Yes, Humble Park. We didn't take risks. We didn't fulfill dreams. We did what you had to do to survive. And fantasies? Nah. No. I never saw affection or love or anything like that growing up. My mother and father were not affectionate towards each other, let alone me. I mean, the last memory I have of my mother and father together is my mother throwing my dad out for cheating. That's episode 501 of The Risk. All right? <laughs> for God's sakes, like my grandparents didn't even sleep in the same room growing up, and I thought this was normal. In my house, sex and relationships were separate. Relationships had nothing to do with sex. Sex had nothing to do with relationships. Sex was to make children. So this was my upbringing. Besides what I learned in school, which is all very, uh, like the mechanics, you know, and the physiology, like how it works and stuff, I didn't know the emotional or psychological that went behind fucking, basically. I didn't. I learned what I learned on the block from my boys. And I'm saying my boys because I grew up on Cortez and Kedzie, and I was the oldest girl on the block. I was the eldest. And so my friends just were, happened to be all dudes. I grew up a tomboy. And so what I learned about sex and fucking, or every, I mean everything, and love and relationships, was from my guys. And they are some ooh, crude motherfuckers, you guys. When I got titties for the first time and I was trying to hide them, one of my boys from across the street said, I don't know why you're wearing them baggy shirts. You know you got titties, Lily. <laughs> and we do too. It happens. In high school, I met a boy working at a survey like call center, and we started dating, and it got heavy, and it was the first time that I actually started to like feel things in this area here. Like I started to like, like my pussy's wet, and like, you know, like shit like that, that, that I never experienced before, and that I know I wasn't gonna talk to my mama about, let alone my grandma, so my boys, were there for me. And they taught me what I needed to know. They'd ask me if I was getting my nut off. And I was like, what is that? Right, what is that? Girl, you know what getting your nut off is? Because I'm sure they knew it. And, I, and, they, and, and they, they pretty much schooled me in like what I should be feeling as a woman. Like they fucking knew, right? They're like 15, like they're 14, 15. And that's another thing, like I was 15 when I lost my virginity to who would become my son's father because yes, first time I fucked, I got pregnant. And my guy friends, this is the guys that I hang out with, would say shit like, 
y'all still fucking even though you're pregnant? And I'd be like, yeah. Ain't you afraid you're going to nut on the baby's head? And they say shit like this. And I would laugh and tell these motherfuckers to go back to school. And that's not the way it works, bro. And, uh, and they, but, but that's, that was my sex ed growing up. And so, no surprise, I ended up pregnant at fucking 16 and had a baby at 17 and moved to Arizona with my son's father. And even the two of us, like, our, again, sex and relationships are separate. That was our relationship. And then he cheated on me because I kept that shit separate. Once I became a mom, I was a mom, 100%. Ain't no fucking no more. I don't want any more fucking babies. And so we didn't. Like, I totally became like this cold fucking fish, as he called it. And I was like, all right. And we separated, like we broke up because he cheated, but we stayed living together until my son turned eight years old. And when he turned eight, my son's father moved out and started taking my son on the weekends. And this was crazy to me, you guys, because I had never been alone on the weekends. I was a mother for eight years, I'm now 20 what 25 years old at the time and everything on like on the weekend everything I had put off and sacrificed I wanted to experience now I'm 25 I got the weekends I'm gonna go out and make friends that aren't in the fucking PTA I'm gonna go out and fucking meet people I'm gonna go out and have one night stands if I want to have them what are one night stands I don't fucking know I'm gonna go do them because I hear about them I, and this was early 90s, I, I mean late, uh, early 2000s, and so there was no like fucking Tinder, and there was no fucking internet. I was left with my own devices, and, and I started to get this itch to just f fulfill my fucking fantasies, because I had put them off for so fucking long, you guys. I wanted to be a freak, yeah. and I was gonna do it. So I started watching porn. Lots of it. And it wasn't fuck, there was no fucking internet. The internet was very young, so there was no XNXX and fucking Pornhub and none of that shit. It was fucking, it was, it was straight up, it was straight up fucking videotapes that I would get from Gigi's on Armitage and Pulaski, which is closing, it's sad. And, uh, <laughs> And I'd watch them on the weekends, and I was really into group porn. Not because I ever wanted to be in group porn, because it just seemed unsanitary, but it just, because on one screen, you see everything. You could get everything. You can get anal over here, and fucking two girls fucking over here, and you got a girl giving a blowjob, you got another girl eating a girl out. That was like my number one choice. And if they didn't have a new video I had not seen, I would then go to my second, which was like girl on girl with like strap-ons, that was even better. So I was like, I would get that. And then as I watched that more, I wanted to do that. And so for the next, from the, for the next couple of weeks, I had got myself into the mindset that I'm gonna find me a woman to be with and I'm gonna experience, I'm gonna fulfill this fucking fantasy. And so I got on these fucking party lines because again, no fucking Tinder, and you had to use the party, party line in the back of the fucking reader when it was four sections long. And, uh, and it was like classifieds, it had these numbers. You could either set up a voicemail or, or you could go room to room talking to people. And I decided to go room to room because I didn't have time to wait for no damn voicemail. I only got two days every weekend. I gotta get on this. I gotta get on it. 
And again, because most of my influence had been from men, like sex, I took on this role of like, I'm, I'm the fucking dude in this. I'ma find me the finest hoe I could find. <laughs> and I knew what she had to look like. She had to be Janet fucking Jackson. She had to have straight up. She had to be light skin like Carmel, like Janet Jackson. I could just picture our skin together. I, she had to have the hair like Janet Jackson. She had to fucking have an ass so fat I could see it from the front. I wanted Janet Jackson. And so I went through the process of vetting women on the phone, talking to them. And it was like two, three weekends before the first one came over. And she and I were on the phone for a while. She told me that she looked like fucking Janet Jackson. Oh, yeah, girl, I look like Janet Jackson. And I'm like, all right, sweet. You coming over? And, and like, I straight up was like the dude. I got a loft in Lakeview, baby girl. You can come on through. I got you. And she did. She came through. Like, I'm upstairs. I'm looking right. Because in, in 2000, early 2000, this was right. It was so right. So right. Everything where it needed to be. Titties up here is great. I fucking, I fucking am excited because she shows up. Ain't no cell phone. She just rings the doorbell. I know it's her. I, like, go downstairs. Super excited. I open the door. And y'all seen Friday. <laughs> Y'all already know, great. I opened the fucking door, and there was this like five foot three, heavy chick. Didn't look no, nothing like Janet Jackson. And I was mad. I was mad like, bitch, oh, bitch. And so I'm just like, come on. And so I just like, come on. <laughs> And I like go up the stairs, heavy footed, and I get inside my fucking loft. She's like, ooh, this is nice. Like, no shit. <laughs> I give her a fucking, I make her a drink, cause I'm nice. I mean, I'm nice. I make her a fucking drink. She drinks it and I, 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 and I have to get real with her. Like, you know, this is my first time and you ain't what I want for my first time. Real talk, all nothing, she lied. And, and she understood, and so she had her drink, and she went right, and I, and I showed her out. Went upstairs, got right back on the party line, <laughs> and invited bitch number two over. And I waited, and she comes over. And here I am, like now a little bit like skeptical, because I'm like, ugh, whatever. And so I, I go downstairs, she rings the doorbell, and I go downstairs in like my little like whatever yoga pants and tank top. I open the door and there she is. Oh, fine as all fuck. She got, oh my goodness. She's like wearing this little black jacket. She's got the fucking Rhythm Nation hat on. Like with the fucking ponytail sticking out the back. Like straight up ponytail sticking out the back. She's just like, oh, ass so fat. You could see it from the front. Everything's perfect. I mean. I knew, I, this is how dude I was. I was like, you go first, sweetie. You go up the, up the stairs first. Go ahead, go ahead. And I just looked at her fucking ass like, this is gonna be in my face later. And I'm walking up the stairs, super happy. Like, yes, this is gonna happen. And I go up the stairs and we go inside and she of course loves the place. And I'm like, I know, right? I make her a drink. 
I make her a drink and we sit on the couch together and she's just like, man, girl, you got some big old titties. And I'm like, I know, uh, you wanna see them? And she's like, yeah. So we didn't go cut all the fucking small talk, just got right into it. She starts just getting going to town, sucking my titties. I'm getting wet, I'm like, yes, this is nice. And, she's, and I'm just like, you know, this is my first time. And she says, I know, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do you first and show you how to do it. And then you do me, and then you know we go from there. And I said, all right, sweet, I got a teacher. She looked like Janet Jackson, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and she does, and she goes down on me. And I'm telling y'all, and I say this, I have had guys go down on me, uh, yeah, a lot. And, um, <laughs> and not one has been able to match what this bitch did that <laughs> night. <laughs> None. It felt like she had a drill bit on her tongue. I don't know how she did it. It felt amazing. And I fucking busting that all in her face. I'm just like, oh, this is amazing. And I get up, she gets up, you know, does the whole glazed face, just like, ah. And, uh, and now it's like my turn to go down on her. And I'm like, let's do this. I just felt what you did. Yes, baby girl, after that, I'm gonna hook you up. And so I go down and she is like moaning and she's loving it. And I am like popping my fucking collar because yes, that's right. First time I got her moaning like this, I feel like a dude. I feel like, yes, I'm doing it. And she is like, whoo, and the shit's getting bigger. The clit's getting, and I'm getting her. She's getting there and she's like, oh, oh, oh. And then bust the nut in my mouth and it's so gross. <laughs> it's like tart. I don't like it. I'm like, ah, I don't like it. I don't like it. That's gross. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, and I decide, fuck it. I got her off. She got me off. I get back up and she's like, whoo, like all sweaty and all excited. And I'm just like, yeah, right? And I'm like, I'm totally like, I'm a pimp. And so we get back to it. And she decides like, I'm gonna do you again. And I'm just like, yeah, get the thought of the taste of you out of my mouth. Yeah, get back down there and uh, do what you gotta do. And so she gets back at it again. And again, drill bit tongue is, cause I don't even remember her name, y'all. Like a dude, like a straight up dude. I don't remember her name. But drill bit tongue, that's what we'll call her. She was all, she was all in it again. And this time, like, I get a little fucking ballsier and I'm just like, I'm gonna grab her by the head. And I'm just gonna be like, yeah, get it, get in it, get in it. And I'm holding her head and I'm showing her and like, she's like loving it. And I'm holding her by the back of her fucking ponytail and it's coming and I'm fucking coming. I'm like, yes, oh my God, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> and in my fucking hand is this bitch's ponytail. <laughs> it like threw off the nut, y'all. Like I didn't even nut. I was just like, what? what the fuck? And I looked down and it's just a little fucking rubber band with hair. It's just a little nub. And it kills it for me. It killed, like, straight up like a dude. Like, I didn't give a fuck. Like, I'm a woman. I know what it takes to fucking look, blah. And I didn't give a fuck. I was like, ball-headed hoe. And I was just like, you ain't fucking, you ain't fucking Janet Jackson. And it killed it for me, guys. I just, she got back up 
like, are you cool, you cool? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I like put my arm around her and like pat her all. It's all right, it's all right. And then I was like, I gotta get up early in the morning. You gotta go. And she's like, all right, cool, call me. And I didn't call that bitch. I'm still a firm believer that you should follow your dreams. You should take risks. You should definitely fulfill your fantasies. I just say that you should keep in mind that that shit is real, all right, when you do it. And that sometimes reality, when it sets in, will fucking freak you out, right? But it's not gonna stop me. I'm still gonna do it. If there's any bitches with your real hair here tonight, <laughs> hit me up. All right, thanks. I was teaching a storytelling workshop last week uh, when I was first talking to Lily about her story and uh, a woman in the workshop was just like, it was just uncanny, the hat, the ponytail, like just strikingly like uh, Rhythm Nation era uh, Janet Jackson and I had to let her know <laughs> that I was working on this story. <laughs> it was so embarrassing for all of us. Um, <laughs> Since I did the episode called Kevin Goes to King Camp, I've had a lot of firsts. And uh, one of them was that about a year ago, I was approached by a fella on Grindr. He was super cute. He, he looked a lot like Justin Bieber without like the assholery part of it. And, uh, and I, I was very intrigued. And, and I looked at his profile and saw that he, he was trans. He had, he explained as we started to talk to each other over Grinder. he explained that he had had top surgery, but nothing down below. And so uh, this would be my first uh, experience, like really getting up and close with, uh, with the female plumbing down there, right? And uh, I said, you know, in the spirit of risk and, and, and all, and the whole like me being all kinky and all, let, let's, let's do this because this kid seems super, super fun and smart and everything else. So we went out on a date and he was indeed, he turned out to be super clever, super funny. And he said, but listen, here's the deal. I am going to be the dom. You are going to be the sub. I am the master, you are the slave. I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want to. I was like, all right. All right, Mr. Justin Bieber lookalike. And the first thing he did was blindfolded me and put me in this like Guantanamo Bay position, like where I'm like kneeling on these prickly things on a hardwood floor. And he's made me outstretch my arms and hold by the shoelaces his two boots. And he's like, all right, I'm gonna go off and do some stuff for a while. If I come back and find that you've dropped your arms, you're in trouble. I was just like, wow, this, this started, there was no warming up here, was there? So I'm like this, like terrible, you know, like holding your arms like that with like heavy weight, like gets uncomfortable within like three seconds. So he goes off and he's gone, you know, doing something in the bathroom or something. And of course I drop the boots and I'm acting and everything, but I'm blindfolded. So I don't know when he's going to re-enter the room. So sure enough, he re-enters and he's like, ah, I gotcha. And I was like, what? Oh! 
<laughs> and he said, just for that, you're going to have to lick my clit. And I was like, wow, this really is going from zero to 60. <laughs> but you know what? It was super fun. It was, I will say, I can't say I want to go back. But it was one of the most fascinating and fun and crazy affairs that I, I can remember. Uh, anyway, that uh, never told that before. All right, our final guest. It's such a treat to get to know him. He is a stand-up comedy uh, comedian doing work all around town. He tours with Second City, and he has a storytelling show. It's a queer storytelling showcase at I.O. called Slanted Door. He's the host of it. It's Saturday at 10.30. Please welcome the stage, Peter Kim! You guys, you guys having fun? Yeah! Let's give it up for all the performers tonight. Yeah, they've been awesome. You guys ready to get a little freaky? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I grew up in Flushing, Queens. Queens is a borough in New York City. Uh, some of you might know Flushing, Queens as the home of the New York Mets. They had the 1964 World's Fair there and also home of comedy legend Fran Drescher. Right? <laughs> Uh, but most people don't know about Flushing Queens is that it is a giant uh, mecca for the South Korean diaspora, especially in the 70s, 80s. Uh, so it was, a, uh, it was a place where a lot of Koreans immigrated to, and they were, all, uh, they were all congregated around the churches. That's where all the communities were built. And that's where my parents uh, immigrated to, and that's where I was born, just to set the scene a little bit. So, uh, I grew up in Flushing, Queens, and as you can imagine, like most immigrant families uh, and church, born-again Christian church families, uh, homosexuality was rarely, rarely discussed. Uh, the church said it was evil and you went to hell. One time when I asked my parents, hey, uh, mom and dad, do you know any gay people? And they were like, there are no gay people in Korea. They were like, being gay is something despicable that only Japanese people do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in that kind of open-minded household. <laughs> uh, like most Korean immigrants, uh, they treasured machismo and masculinity in their boys. And I was just not one of those boys. All the other Korean boys that I knew took Taekwondo lessons and, and played basketball. And I played the flute <laughs> and watched Shira, Princess of Power. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yes. So much more interesting than He Man, right? So I knew I was different way from the beginning, but because of my born-again Christianity and the brainwashing, I always tried to suppress it and hide it. My first ever 
uh, homosexual memory was uh, when I was in fifth grade, I was at my friend Andy's house. He was a Chinese boy. I went over to his house. He opened a door for me. He was wearing uh, just like a tank top and basketball shorts. He was like, come in. And I sat down in his living room. He was like, do you want some something to drink? And I was like, sure. And I sat down and he sat down in front of me and I saw his dick and balls pop out of his basketball shorts. And I remember there was a reverberation throughout my body. And I was like, oh my God, look at this fleshy Chinese ball sack. What is going on? I'm feeling things. And I did not know what I was feeling at that point. I don't know if I got an erection. I probably didn't. I don't remember my dick getting hard. Um, but I do remember the first time I had a gay erection was um, when I was in eighth grade. The movie Birdcage had come out. Yeah, you guys know this? The Robin Williams movie, Rest in Peace. And I had somehow obtained a VHS bootleg copy of the birdcage, and when my whole family was out, I would sneak and watch this like it was gay porn. <laughs> and I remember my first raging hard-on when I saw the oiled-up, muscular body of Hank Azaria. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? And I remember thinking, this is not this is, I can't do this. This isn't me. This is shameful. This is wrong. I, I would go to church every day. I, I was one of these kids that went to Wednesday night Bible study, Friday night praise night, Sunday night church, and I grew up in the church, and I would spit this homophobic drivel that everyone else was spitting to make sure I distanced myself from being caught by anyone. I was living in fear for so long. I had continued this way until I went to high school, which was the first time I ever had an emotional connection to a boy. It was freshman Friday. I went to a high school called the Bronx High School of Science, uh, which was a specialized high school that you had to take like an SAT-like test to get in. So our school ended up being 42% Asian. <laughs> yeah. And a hundred percent of those Asians were virgins till s throughout the entire time. So it was Freshman Friday, and all the senior virgins, they uh, gathered all the freshman virgins together, and they were like, we're going to fuck with these kids and haze the shit out of them. And they were rolling us down this hill called Harris Field. And it was just the thing that happened. And I remember that day I saw Mark. Mark was a boy, he was shorter than me. He was like five foot three. He wore a cap all the time. And he looked so poor, like even poorer than me. He was wearing some janky ass Kmart jeans and his ears stuck out like a chimpanzee. And I was smitten. I was like, oh my God, who is this kid? and he had a hook nose. I was like, what is going on? How do I feel so attracted to this, this boy? We instantly became friends. We were attracted to each other instantly, and we would hang out all the time. And soon we found out that we had very similar backgrounds. And, and Mikey was talking about how his dad would beat the shit out of him with a wiffle ball bat. Um, <laughs> Korean immigrants are no different. They just took anything around the house and broke it over your back. And it, 
we both came from these very abusive, uh, broken families. It was a hard time, and we clung to each other like two buoys in a storm. And I think that's what really bonded us together was that we had these similar backgrounds. We hated our families, but we had each other. So, as you can imagine, a school full of 42% Asian guys, all virgins, all grabbing their balls and you know, tongue-wanging alpha male type of guys who are not having sex. So all of that testosterone and all that energy and hormones had to go somewhere. And in my school, it went to us wrestling and grappling all the time. It was insane, that's all we did. And I fucking loved it. I loved it. And I remember when Mark and I would wrestle and grapple, I loved the feeling of our bodies locking, our legs locking, and me being able to overpower him and sometimes letting him dominate me and it felt so good and it was the closest I was getting to sex ever. So uh, we were grappling the whole four years we were in high school, and uh, we would hang out with 20 other Asian virgins. And uh, yeah, that was a lot of Asians. And, uh, and it, it was weird, like we were all Christian, we were all from these immigrant families, uh, very homophobic and macho. Uh, so a lot of our like angst came out through like wearing leather jackets and having like long bangs dyed and bleached blonde. It was a disgusting but acceptable look in the 90s. <laughs> so this was my crew. We hung out together all the time. And a lot of what we did was we would drink at our uh, neighborhood uh, elementary school playground. We would drink 40s right and St. Ides wine coolers and get fucking trashed at a playground and then stumble home and Mark and I would always stumble home back to my house sneak in through the window and one night it was a cold winter night we snuck in through my window and we got into my bed and we passed out cuddling each other I was spooning him and it felt so right every crevice clicking into each other. I could feel his heartbeat through my back. And it was perfect. It was something that was indescribable. There was no logic to it. There was no labels to it. Nobody had to fucking know what was going on. It was just something we did. And both of us knew how much we loved it. So we would make excuses to go over each other's houses and cuddle all the time. And he introduced me to Peter Cetera. And yeah, and so we would spend balmy summer nights listening to Glory of Love, smoking Marlboro Lights through my barred Flushing Queens apartment window, and it was the best time of our lives. I think what we gave to each other was what we were missing from our families. I was someone safe for him, and uh, for me, he was someone that loved me unconditionally, even though we never spoke about it. So that went on uh, for a long time, and we were best friends. We were inseparable. I remember one time when we were cuddling, he turned his head back to me, and he said, hey, I could feel your balls on my ass. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and being so embarrassed that I jerked back, and I turned around, and he 
after a couple of seconds, turned around and then spooned me instead. And I pulled his arm in closer and we were just locked there. And I remember thinking like, this is where I want to spend the, I wish time would stop. I wish I could spend the rest of my life in his arms like this forever. So when it came to college, we both ended up going to the State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is a state school in New York and Long Island. Yeah, all right, SUNY New York. Uh, it wasn't the best school, but we were both like, who we didn't care about college. We were just like, let's just go anywhere that they would give us money and uh, they will uh, let us dorm together. So we ended up dorming together. The first week or so we were there, we met a girl named Stephanie. Now, Stephanie was uh, from another uh, one of these specialized high schools, but it was in Brooklyn. She was also a broken toy as well. She came from an immigrant church background, and uh, she had a very abusive father as well, which was also the pastor of her mega church. And yeah, so it was a really fucked up situation. There was one time she told me that uh, her dad made her sit on the floor and eat dinner next to the dog while the rest of the family ate at the table and watched. And so this was the kind of like really dark, disgusting shit that like we were drawn to because we were all like, hey, we're all fucked up, let's all cling together. So the three of us clung together and we were like the three musketeers and it was the best time. And we did some like really stupid shit like, uh, we would do uh, play like scavenger hunt on a Friday night because we were fucking losers and we had no f other friends until Mark ended up hanging out with these guys that he had met through his classes and he started smoking weed and hanging out with them uh, and soon he started like pulling away and I felt so hurt. I was like, why are you hanging out with these guys? Who are they? Who are you fucking cuddling? And I got <laughs> insanely jealous. And he was like, whoa, calm down. You know, we're in college. I'm just meeting new people. Uh, so I started getting very, very insanely jealous. And to the point where uh, every time he would go out, I would wait for him until he came back and give him the third degree. I was like, where were you? And he was like, this isn't what I signed up for. It got to a point where like, I was so heartbroken because I thought after spending this much time so close to each other in high school that, I don't know, maybe we would go to college and become lovers or something. But it had been four months in the first semester in college and we hadn't cuddled once. And I was like, freaking out. And I remember we would watch straight porn together and he would never jerk off. And I remember one day, we both went to sleep and I heard rustling from his bed and I knew he was pleasuring himself. And all I could think was, I can help you. Please let me help you. <laughs> the next morning, he went to the showers and I went into his hamper and I looked for his underwear. He always wore these white Tommy Hilfiger briefs. And I picked it up and I saw that it was stained with cum. And I sniffed it. I was like, <sighs> and I jerked off to it. And I remember thinking like, what the fuck am I doing? But I had never come so fast and so hard. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. 
and this perversion started to grow and grow and grow to the point where he would take his underwear off and throw it in the hamper and immediately when he left I would take it out of the hamper and wear it around and this was the only way I felt that I could be close to him because he was pulling away from me so much now Fast forward to spring break of freshman year. This was 2001, February. Uh, me, Mark, and Stephanie were all hanging out, and Mark pulls me aside, and he goes, hey, by the way, I was talking to Stephanie, and she said she wants to have sex. And I was like, uh, uh, no, you can't. And he goes, why? And I was like, because. I'm in love with her. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, maybe you should go out with her then. You guys get along really well. And I was like, yeah, maybe I will. So I ended up asking her out. Now, what I didn't tell you about Stephanie was that when she was in high school, she had a reputation of being loose. Uh, she had a nickname that she gave to herself. <laughs> and it was called the Divergenator. <laughs> because she had divergenated five Asian boys at her school, which was more than, I guess, most Asian girls at their school. So the Divergenator was trying to claim Mark, and I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't. So I went in there and I asked her, I was like, Stephanie, I'm in love with you. Let's go out. And she was like, oh, I, oh, okay, yeah, sure. So we started hanging out all the time. And my plan backfired because Mark started to pull away more. And Stephanie just wanted to have sex all the time. And I was like, keep your vagina away from me. <laughs> and I would do everything in my power to hinder her from wanting to have sex with me, including binge eating Indian food at the cafeteria and playing Disney movies on VHS nonstop, but the divergenator could not be stopped. One day we were in my dorm room, just me and her. Mark had not come back from spring break. We came back early, and we were sitting there on my bed watching The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And she started kissing my cheek, and I was like, whoa, what are you doing? She was like, come on, you know, we're, we're boyfriend and girlfriend now, right? And I was like, I guess. And she started kissing my lips, which at age 18 was the first kiss I had ever had. And I was like, okay. And she started kissing me. And then she started putting her hands all over my body, down my belly, and down into my sweatpants. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And she was like, shh, just relax. And she pulled my sweatpants off and started blowing me. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this feels amazing. <laughs> but yet so wrong. It felt so incredibly wrong. And it was this weird feeling where like, my body was saying like, yeah, there's a wet mouth on your dick, go with it. And, I'm, and meanwhile, I'm like, where the fuck is Mark? Why isn't he back yet? Who is he cuddling? 
that's what was going through my mind. And I was like, hey, let's just stop, stop, stop. I pulled her head away from my penis and I was like, hey, why don't we just watch The Little Mermaid? She was like, that's my favorite movie. I've watched it a thousand times. I don't give a fuck. And I was like, um, okay. And she starts blowing me again. And all I could hear in the background is sha la 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 la. Oh my, my. The boy is shy. He kind of kissed the girl. And I'm like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden, she comes up to my face, whispers into my ear. She goes, hey, I want you to fuck me. And I was like, uh, okay. So she flips me around, gets me on top of her, and I'm trying to fit my penis into her vagina without touching any other part of her body. So literally, I am planking on top of her, trying to do one of these things. And, I'm, and it's my first time anywhere near any hole. So I'm like trying to figure out where it's going and she's trying to guide it. I'm like, stop touching it! <laughs> and, and I finally insert and I remember in my head there was an explosion. I was like, oh my God, this feels amazing. But it felt so incredibly wrong. So I was stumbling in and out, trying not to touch a boob and she finally gets frustrated and she goes all right turn around and she flips me around I'm on my back and she gets on top of me and she starts riding me and all I could mutter from my mouth was oh no oh no oh no To which she leans down into my ear and she goes, shh, don't worry. I was born without a uterus, so you could come inside me. <laughs> and before I could even think of something to retort, I was busting a geyser of virginal cum all up in her barren wasteland. And just a squall of shame had started to fall from my head to my toes. I just laid there and she was still on me and she looks at me and she goes, that was fun. And she jumps off of me, my post-virginal cum still dripping from her vagina and she stamps my chest with it. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And she leans over to me and she goes, you know, they call me the diverginator. That's my finishing move. I thought I was losing my virginity, not a game of Mortal Kombat. 
All right, calm down. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> she then lays on my side, nuzzles her head on my shoulder, and goes, do you want to go again? And without even blinking, I said, absolutely not. And I kicked her out of my dorm room, and I was like, I can't look at you right now. And she left. Everything changed. Mark had come back, and I told Mark what had happened, and he, all he could say was, how was it? How was it? And I was like, I, I don't think I like it. And he was like, oh, okay, that's weird. Now, two weeks later, after that, I had put in an application to transfer to the University of Michigan, and I had gotten in. Go blue. <laughs> and I had gotten in. So it was easy for me to avoid Stephanie and be like, okay, I'm not going to go to school in here anymore. Let's just not talk and let's not see each other. And then the year ended out, and Mark and I were still at this weird place, and it was so painful to live in the same dorm room with the man that I loved, but I couldn't express it in any way because of my homophobia and the shame that it was still built inside of me. So I went home and I asked my mom, hey, remember your friend up in Tamiment, which is a resort up in the Catskill Mountains in New York State? And she goes, yeah, yeah what's, what's, why? And I was like, could you get me and Mark a job up there? And she was like, yeah, let's, I'll look into it. And then she got us a job, and we were like, yeah, let's get out of the city for the summer. And I was like, this is my perfect scheme and plan. We're going to be in, up in the mountains. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to spend all summer being ranch hands, and we're going to fall in love, and it's going to be a gay erotic novel for the century. <laughs> so we drive up there, pack all our stuff. We're singing to Britney Spears. He was a big fan of Britney Spears for her body, and uh, we got up to the Catskill Mountains. We get to Tamiment. We check in with the guy. And he showed us around. And he showed us to our room. And our room had one queen-size bed. And I like looked up to the heaven. And I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> this is a sign. So that night, he told us, sleep early. Because you guys have to get up early in the morning. And you guys have to help with the guests and stuff. And we're like, don't worry. OK. So we end up going to sleep. And it was so hot. It was the hottest day I could ever even imagine. We were dripping sweat, all the windows open. The fan was go on full blast. And I remember we were in bed, and I was tossing and turning. And I don't know if it was because of the thousands of cicadas outside or it was because all I could think about was just getting on Mark's dick that I just could not sleep. And I was tossing and turning. Midnight turned to 1 a.m., 1 a.m. turned to 3 a.m. And I just got up and I turned over and I see that Mark has the biggest erection ever. Hit the tip of his penis poking through his boxer shorts. And I was like, this is my chance. So I made a move. I grabbed his cock, his throbbing cock. And, I, and before I grabbed it, I was like, this is going to be so hot. I'm going to grab it. He's going to look at me. He's going to be like, suck my fucking dick. <laughs> this is going to be the original Brokeback Mountain. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I grabbed it, and I, and I saw him, and he woke up. 
But he wasn't sleeping. He wasn't sleeping at all. He opened his eyes and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, what? He goes, what the fuck are you doing? I ain't like that. I'm not a fucking faggot. I was like, what? And he got up from the bed and smashed a lamp and started breaking things in the room. And I got so cold. My body got frigid and I was like, this can't be happening. What is happening? This can't be real. And he was like, what the fuck? You cannot do that. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. And I got on my knees and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is not, I'm sorry. And all I could say was, sorry, please forgive me. And he was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And I was like, please, please, Mark, don't leave me here. I, I can't stay here. And he told me, pack your shit, we're going back to New York right now. So we packed all our stuff, and put it in his Camry, and we drove four hours back to New York City in complete silence, smoking cigarettes after cigarettes. No Britney was playing at all. <laughs> and every time I try to talk, he would just be like, so I just kept going in and out of sleep, going from crying to sleeping to crying to sleeping. And he finally dropped me off at home. And before I could even say bye and turn around, he sped off. After that, he refused to take my calls. And he never spoke to me again. Now, I went to the University of Michigan after that. And I was in a fucked up state for so long. I had stress dreams about this guy about him, he and I becoming friends again, him forgiving me for 12 years. And it was a nightmare, literally, it was a nightmare. I didn't have sex after that for seven years. Yeah, it was, I was so traumatized and I didn't come out until nine years after that moment. So it was a rough time for me. Now, 12 years passed by, I turned 30, we both turned 30, we're the same age. And we're not Facebook friends, but I kept stalking him through my friends' pages. Like, how is he doing, what's he doing? But he had one of these Facebook pages that was blocked. So like, I couldn't see anything. So I messaged him. The day I turned 30, I was like, hey, we're both 30 years old. I'm really sorry about what happened when we were kids. I, I was confused. And, 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 you know, scared, and I took advantage of you, and that wasn't right. And I just, I wish you could forgive me. And there was no response. Till two weeks later, he finally responded, hey, it's all water under the bridge. I hope you're doing well. And I stopped having stress dreams that day after that. And... It took me a while to figure out who I am. I'm still trying to figure out who I really am. And I hope he has figured out who he is. But I will always remember him as the boy that held me close and I felt completely safe in his arms. And you know what? You can't take that away from me. Thank you.
this week folks this is radical face behind me now i'll tell you was that one hell of a story from peter kim just extraordinary everyone was just wonderful in chicago thanks to everyone at lincoln hall as well hey listen if you are a social worker or a volunteer or or if you just know of someone who might have a story from the fringes. We're looking for, on risk, stories from people that you might not hear from so much. People who have been or are homeless or incarcerated or maybe have faced a big struggle coming home from serving in one of our wars. If you have any ideas or you know of anyone, reach out to me. I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. Also, you guys might remember Carolyn Castiglia. She was on the episode called Inappropriate, telling a story about her mother that got lots of listener response. She's launching a new live talk show in New York on April 29th at the Slipper Room. You should really check it out. Lots of wonderful people who have been on risk will be on it. It's called Right Now with Carolyn Castiglia. You just go to slipperroom.com to get your tickets there. Folks, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook on both places. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And don't forget our school is at thestorystudio.org. We teach all kinds of workshops, including one-on-one training over Skype and video lecture courses that you can do in your own time online. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
No, my first name ain't Baby. It's Janet. Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. Didn't look no nothing like Janet Jackson. <laughs> 